Bible now. Um, there are Bibles in the bottom of the seats in front of you. Black one. Page 1084. We're reading from John's Gospel account, chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Page 1084. So this is Jesus' prayer continuing. The first little sentence says, My prayer is not for them alone. He's referring to his disciples who were with him and knew him when he was alive. So starting John 17 verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Thanks, Judy. G'day, night church. G'day, Nath. Um, particular welcome to you if it's your first time with us tonight. You're a first timer. We love having visitors at night church. Um, my name is Nathan. Uh, it's great to have you here. I'm just going to spend the next few moments having a think about what Judy just read from God's word for us. If you've ever read the Old Testament before, you will know that from time to time you come upon these great long lists of crazy names. You know the lists, right? Kind of like, here's an example, 2 Samuel 23. You've got Benaiah, Hiddai, Abi Albon, and of course, Asmaveth. Now, apart from struggling to even pronounce any of those names, it's pretty tempting to just kind of skip over them when you come to these parts of the Old Testament. But lately, rather than skipping over these bits, I've actually liked to just stop and marvel for a moment at the fact that these random people got their names into the Bible. (laughs) Now, that's a claim to fame if ever there is one, right? Take Asmaveth. Who is that guy, right? What's his deal? Somehow he managed to get his name into a book that's been translated into 700 different languages. Asmaveth. So even though we might skate over these lists, I still like to marvel at what it would be like to get your own shout out in the Bible, to make your way in there. Here's the thing though, we kind of do get a shout out 
of sorts, not on an Old Testament list, but in a New Testament prayer. In our passage tonight, in fact, you might have noticed it as we were reading it. The whole of John chapter 17, Jesus has been coming before the Lord in prayer. The whole thing is a prayer from Jesus. First, he prays for himself. Last week, which most of you, I'm guessing, missed, we heard him pray for his closest disciples. And then in verse 20 to 26, our passage tonight, he brings his prayer to a close by praying for us, those who will believe in me through the message. That's us. You might be sitting there going, oh, well, come on, that doesn't really count as a shout out, does it? But consider this, Jesus was God, so he was totally capable that as he prayed these words, that he actually had you in his mind. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? And you know what makes it even crazier? Jesus is offering this prayer to his father the night before his own death. At the last supper, supper, he's staring down the barrel of getting nailed to a piece of wood the next morning. And yet, in his final hours, you are one of the things on his mind. So much so that he prays for you. Just grasp that for a moment. (laughs) Isn't that kind of incredible? And it, of course, begs the question, what is he actually asking for? What is weighing on him so heavily about you and about I? The answer is right there at the top of verse 21 for us. More than anything else, he asks his father, take a look, that all of them, as in us, that we all may be one. That's his prayer. That we all may be one. I reckon that's a bit of a surprising thing for him to ask. I mean, what does it even mean? For us to be one. Well, Jesus explains what it means for us to be one by drawing what's got to be just about the most enormous comparison ever when he continues by saying that all of them may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. In other words, he's saying to his Father, just as we are one, I want them to be one. It's like, oh, great. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. What does that mean? It's like those times when you ask someone, you know, a particular word that they've used, what does that mean? And the definition they give you is another word that you don't know what it means. It's like, great, that didn't really help at all. Reminds me of a time when I was putting one of my kids to bed a few years ago. He was young. I prayed for him. I then, I said, amen, but he didn't say amen. And I thought for a second, that was interesting. I said, you know what? You can actually say amen at the end of someone's prayer. Well, immediately the question came, what does amen mean? Now, I'm an idiot. I actually gave him the Hebrew definition. (laughs) It means truly, I said to him. Of course, then came the follow-up, well, what's truly mean? Like, what does that mean? I thought for a second, I tried again to make it a bit simpler. I said, it means I agree course I then got well what's I agree (laughs) at this point I'm like I just want you to go to sleep so I tried to really dumb it down I said it just means good one (laughs) good one he's like what (laughs) I'm like it just means that you like the prayer thought for a moment and you went 
Amen. <laughs> so we got there eventually. He now does say amen at the end of our prayers, which is good. But it feels a little bit like when Jesus describes what it means for us to be one by saying it's like how the Father and the Son are one. Because <laughs> you see, Jesus' explanation actually needs an explanation itself. And the oneness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, another name for it is the Trinity, that is definitely a little concept that needs just a bit of explanation. (laughs) Here we go. Simply put, it declares that God is both one and three, okay, of one being and also three persons. Now, importantly, that means that is not just one God simply playing three different roles or wearing three different masks, all right? That's wrong. Nor is it saying that it's simply just three different gods, okay? That is wrong as well. It's both three persons that share one being of God, all right? He's both three and he is one. Any questions? Great, great. Now, I know that sounds a little bit strange, or maybe a lot strange, if you've never kind of heard this idea before, but trust me when I say that the doctrine of the Trinity is not just some theological mumbo-jumbo that's only the domain of Bible nerds who sit around tediously picking apart pointless detail. It really isn't. This is actually absolutely central. And it's immensely important. And that's because the Trinity concerns none other than the very nature of the God we worship. And in fact, without it, our God makes little sense and actually truly cannot exist. Now, let me just be clear in case you're sitting there starting to worry. This isn't a sermon on the Trinity. (laughs) Okay, but Jesus does go there in our passage tonight. You might have noticed that as we were reading. And so we actually need to understand what it means, at least a little, in order to understand what he is actually praying for us. So, firstly, God in and of himself is both personal and his relational. Both of those things are at the very core of his being, who he is, what he is on about. And so John, who's actually the author of our passage tonight, He wrote in another letter, later on in the New Testament, puts it very simply and beautifully. He says, God is love. God is love, right? Both personal and relational. Now, the kind of love that John's got in mind as he describes God in this way is not your kind of dozen roses, Valentine's Day, butterflies in the stomach, romantic kind of love. It's sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is other person-centered love, right? It points outwards. It's the kind of love that compels you to put someone else's needs above your own. God is that love, John says. That's the kind of love God is. The thing about other person-centered love, though, is that it cannot exist outside of relationship. There has to be somebody to love, in other words, And so if we're going to say that God is love, it actually also means that God cannot exist outside of relationship. You follow me? 
And that's a problem. That's a big problem because God is eternal and he's actually before all things. Starting to see the issue. How could John possibly say that God is love if at one point in time God was actually the only one that existed? That's not possible. Not possible unless God actually is a relationship within himself. And that, folks, is what the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to comprehend. God himself is a Trinitarian community of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the three of them are bound together by a self-giving, other-centered, joyful, generous, and compassionate love. And because each person is distinct and different, the way they express that love to each other is also distinct and different, and yet all three of them are bound together as one being by their other person-centered love for each other. There's our crash course for the day. Take a few breaths. All of that is to say that when Jesus prays in John 17 that we might be one, just as he and the Father are one, what he's really asking is that we might be bound together by the same kind of love that binds Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he's asking. That we might share with each other the very, the very same self-giving, other-centered, joyful, generous, and compassionate love. I wonder, are you up for that? Are you up for that? Here is a, a few quick things that that might mean for us if we're going to help answer Jesus' prayer. It'll mean, firstly, that we share possessions, being generous with our stuff, which with Christians, you know, sometimes results in the Tim Tam paradox when there's just one Tim Tam left. Right? Oh, no, you can have it. No, 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 I, I couldn't possibly have it. You should, you should finish the Tim Tams. Me? No, really, you should have it, and around and around it goes, right? I reckon at any given point in the day, anywhere in the world, there's a bunch of Christians kind of just stuck in that loop, <laughs> sharing their possessions. Tim Keller calls this being a community that's marked by drastic open-handedness. Drastic open-handedness. I love that idea. And it's precisely the kind of picture that we see in the book of Acts, that in the very first Christian community, uh, that is gathered together by God's Spirit. Many of you will know this picture and know these words well. Acts chapter 2 describes the sharing of possessions like this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Beautiful, isn't it? And that is actually an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. That is the kind of drastic open-handedness that requires us to hold a little less tightly to our stuff. It asks us to look up from our phones for a moment and to see the needs that might be around us. It calls us to be as willing to see needs as we are to actually meet them. Isn't that often half the battle, just knowing what needs to be done. 
Ultimately, Jesus wants us to be a community that is eager to share, whether it's money, whether it's time, whatever it might be to meet the right needs. The unity Jesus prays for also involves us sharing problems, being a problem-sharing community. That's something I reckon many of us do pretty well here, actually. Things like visiting the hospital when one of us goes down or sending an encouragement to, a, to someone who's low, sending them a message, making meals, offering prayer. Really, it's just a willingness to involve ourselves in each other's lives, which also includes making your problems my problems. Doesn't that sound like the kind of community you'd like to be a part of? And that's the thing about being one, right? When one of us hurts, all of us hurt. When one of us mourns, all of us mourn. Jesus wants this to be a place that shares problems and also a place, I reckon, where we should be sharing truth. Apostle Paul calls it speaking the truth in love. I'm sure we've all been a part of communities before, right? Friends at school or uni or workmates, family, whatever it is, where really it's a community where no one speaks the truth or the full truth because no one wants to step on other people's toes or get on the wrong side of someone. So we kind of cover up the issues, we tiptoe around, we let stuff slide that we really shouldn't and we think we're being loving but really we're just loving ourselves. That's not how we should be. We need to love each other enough to actually be truthful, even when hearing the truth might sting. Because you know, the most troublesome sins in our lives will be the ones that we can't even see. And your blindness will actually continue for as long as no one around you is prepared to bring it to your attention. So we, we actually love one another when we're courageous enough to share the truth with plenty of gentleness and grace, of course. Lastly, it's also the kind of community, I think, where we share our failures. Like our world is so obsessed with success, isn't it? That those who fail end up getting rejected, ostracized, forgotten, ignored. But the people of God we live and breathe his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. And so those things actually need to characterize our love for one another as well. Which means when one of us fails, trips up, stuffs up, makes a mistake, by the grace of God, we absorb those failures and we actually turn it into wisdom. And they then become golden opportunities for us to learn and grow with each other. We don't expel failure. We forgive, we reconcile, and we heal to the glory of God. And you know, when we reach that unity, when we share all of those things and far more, God in his great wisdom actually will use our community of other person-centered love in amazing and profound ways. Jesus says it right there in his prayer. When we are a community that's bound together as one by love, the world sees us and God is made known to them. 
And it makes perfect sense, of course, right? Because the love that's bound us together is not actually our love at all. It's God's love. So when they see his love in us, of course, they're actually seeing him. The great John Stott puts it so well when he he says this, great quote, the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in us, in Christians, if we love one another. It is through the quality of our loving that God makes himself visible today. How incredible is that? It is through the quality of our loving that God makes himself visible today. As we are included into the tri-unity, into the love of God, we're also included in the task of making him known. We do that through proclaiming the gospel, absolutely. And yet part of how God makes himself known is actually through the way that we love each other, through the tangible, noticeable, visible way in which we transform from being selfish to being selfless. As we make that love a part of ourselves, it becomes the binding agent, the glue of our community. And it's like, here's here's what it's like we're doing. We're flipping the switch and plugging in some great big intrusive neon sign. (laughs) And as it hangs there in the dark, humming and glowing, the light of God's reality and of what is done in sending the sun, the light of his love cuts through the darkness of our world. Just last month, the leaders and I had uh, 80 or so of our teenagers from here at St. Matt's away on our annual summer camp. It was fun. One of the things we did was hit up this ropes course, uh, kind of strung in the treetops. There were three levels to it. It was pretty epic. Um, And as we were packing up, and the last of our guys and girls were coming off the course... Uh, I was chatting to one of the guys who runs the place, and it was so funny. He could not stop talking to me about what he had seen that day in our youth. There's just something about them, he kept saying. He said it at least three times. There's just something about them. You can tell they get what life's about. I thought, wow, that is a, that is a funny thing for you to say. Or was it? I pushed him on what he meant by that, and he said, they were just so kind to each other. They were just so kind to each other. And he fell to his knees and he gave his life to Christ. No. <laughs> that would be great. You believe me for a second, didn't you? <laughs> that, yeah, no, that didn't happen, unfortunately. But that would have been great. But that very moment for that guy, as he was noticing there was something different about us, was exactly what Jesus prayed would happen. That when we show love to each other, we show God to the world. What an opportunity that is. Now, unfortunately, it's also the case that the reverse of that is true. When we fail to love, when there's spite and gossip in our community, when we knowingly or unknowingly exclude and, and ignore people, 
when we're so wrapped up in ourselves and our own issues that we can't see the needs of those around us, when we tear down reputations rather than build up, when we fan the flames of conflict rather than opting for peace, when we're driven by selfishness rather than selflessness or driven by greed rather than generosity, when we play favorites and revel in being the secret keeper, or when we're only ever here on a Sunday night for ourselves and what we can get out of it. When we fail to be one by failing to love, what we're effectively doing is switching off the sign, turning off the light, leaving the world in the dark. Actually, it's a little worse than that. We're not just losing the light, we're actually shining the wrong message, like some of these signs. That's my favorite, Dynasty Buffet. (laughs) When the church lacks love, we make Jesus ugly. The message is wrong and it's deformed because when we withhold love from each other, what we're actually doing is withholding God from the world. Just think on that for a moment. What a grave thing for us to be involved with. Now, I don't know how you feel hearing all of that. In honesty, it leaves me worrying about all those times when I have failed to love, both knowingly and unknowingly, sometimes thinking I was being loving. In truth, the struggle to love each other is innate, isn't it? It's actually our default setting. And no matter how nice you might present on the surface, Deep down, all of us are desperately trying to justify ourselves by competing and comparing ourselves to others. You know you do it, right? You, You meet someone for the first time. What do you do? You size them up to make sure that they don't actually pose a threat to your sense of self worth. How they look, how they dress, how liked they might be, how much they have, how how easily success has come for them, how together they seem to have their life, how on track they are. Everyone's a potential threat to our sense of self-worth. And the insecurities and the fears that drive all of this, they're strong. And they divide us. And it banishes any hope of us embracing the kind of other person-centered love that Jesus is praying for us to have. There is an answer, though, to our default setting. Because you see, it doesn't have to be that way. And the solution is actually right there in the middle of Jesus' prayer. That we might receive and that we might behold God's glory. By glory, Jesus is talking about all of his glorious saving work. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the overwhelming glory of all that that accomplishes. That is the Son's glory, a glory that we actually get to receive and participate in when we turn from our sins, 
when we repent and when we believe. And it's a glory that we behold as we contemplate and think on and marvel at all that he is and all that he has done. If you're here tonight and all this sounds pretty new to you and you're intrigued or you're interested, the first thing is make sure you come back. But come and grab myself or Naomi or Kelsey and have a chat. We would love to talk to you because I think it means God is calling you, actually, calling you to come and receive his love. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, his offer stands to you and we want to we help you take hold of it. And if you're sitting here tonight and, and you are struggling to behold, struggling to marvel at God's love for you, I want you to take a quick look at what I think is the most staggering statement in this whole prayer. The final part of the prayer. Verse 23 ends up dropping the truth bomb to end all truth bombs when Jesus says this, that you, Father, have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you realize what that means? What he's saying? Those who believe are loved by the Father as much as he has loved the Son. Just think on that for a moment. Think on that for the whole week. (laughs) It's incredible. Whatever love the Father has for his one and only Son is the very same love that he has for you. That is truth and it is incredible. And when we behold the glory of God's love for us, if we let it soak in, and I mean really sink deep down to our very core, when this glorious truth makes its home in our heart, we will be freed to love like him and to approach all of our relationships in a radical new way, no longer burdened by the weight of competition and comparison and the paralysis of our fear of not meeting up, not measuring up. Because you see, when we behold his love, it injects us with an assurance that removes all of our securities and a comfort that banishes all of our fears. And in truth, it's only when we rest in the confidence of God's abounding love for us that we will then be capable of living a life of love. Brothers and sisters, You are loved, not maybe, not just a bit, and not just sometimes. God's love for you is constant, unconditional, and it burns as fiercely for you as it does for his beloved son. Let that truth draw us closer to him. Let it draw us closer in love to each other, and let let that love light up the darkness with such brilliance that when the world turns to look, we show them God in all his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such a staggering little passage you have fed us with tonight. With so much in it for us to unpack and to digest. Lord, we pray that we would take some of this tonight and it would indeed sink deeply into our hearts, that we might 
feel the love that you have for us, that we might know that it is true even when we don't feel it. We thank you, Lord, for your son, for his generosity in sharing his glory with the likes of us. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice, his other person-centered love that drives him to give his life for a, a rabble like us. May we, Lord, continue to reflect on the truths of your word from tonight, that it may continue to drive us deeper into your love and as a result, deeper into love with each other, that we may show the world who you truly are. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.